Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another Epedition, Epedition, Epedition. What the fuck is it? Epedition, Episode, Edition. It's a it's a mix of an episode and edition. Welcome to another Epedition of what is this? Ranting out my ass, Roma. This is a Roma. So if you're if you've come here expecting scintillating conversation with an intelligent person, you've come to the wrong place. There's no one here but me. It's just me. And I'm just going to be ranting, talking about shit, and I'll play you some cool music, and I'll read um, emails that some of you have sent in, and I'll just talk shit for a while. And that's it. That's all there is. So if that's less than what you're hoping for, and I certainly understand, I, I won't have any hard feelings whatsoever if you say... Fuck this. I like the conversations. I don't want to hear that guy just yammering for a fucking hour. All right. Good. I hear you. Go home. Go do something else. Get back to work, you lazy bastard. Or bastardess, or whatever you are. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be reading some emails. Uh, it's uh, it's dark. It's rainy, dark here in Topanga, California, hippie capital of uh the mountains, Santa Monica Mountains, north of Los Angeles. And um, so I thought, what the fuck? I don't feel like... <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, actually, this is this was my thought process. Is like, I'm tired of staring into this computer, dealing with emails and whatever other bullshit I was doing, reading articles and stuff. So um, I'll, do, I'll stand up, because I put the desk up. It's a thing. I crank it, and the desk goes up. So now I'm standing, but I'm still staring into the fucking computer mostly, but at least it feels like I'm not. How about those Patriots? God damn. God damn. That was rough. For a for someone who's not a Patriots fan, that was a rough experience yesterday. And that's all I'll say about it in deference to our international listeners. Uh, okay, so before I I even begin this thing... I'm going to play you some music. It's, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this song. It's N apostrophe and then Jarinu, J-A-R-I-N with a tilde U, Garab. I don't know what language it's in. I know it's by Sheik Lo and he's from Burkina Faso. So go figure it out. I don't know, but it's a pretty cool fucking song. I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back shortly when Mr. Lo finishes what he's about to do. Ya 
gentlemen from Burkina Faso which is a little country in West Africa uh, as always you'll find links to whatever I play um, on my website if you go to tangentiallyspeaking.com or that chrisryan.com you'll see it all there just look for 
the podcast tab, or if you go to tangentiallyspeaking.com, it takes you directly there. And you'll see links and uh, you'll be able to find and purchase the music by these fine musicians or see them in concert or buy their damn t-shirts or whatever it is. Uh, Okay, before I read the first letter, I just want to say I've gotten a a slurry, a spate, a, a batch, a lot of emails recently apparently from people with uh, various masturbation and penis malfunction uh, concerns. And I have to say, I'm not a urologist. I'm not even a medical doctor. So I'm not the right guy to ask about stuff like that. Um, There are lots of sites online where you can ask those sorts of medical questions and doctors look in and, you know, even Dan Savage has much better uh, access to things. I would check his archives. A lot of them, you know, the same things come up, you know, like someone who learns to masturbate in a certain way and then they can't, uh, you know, they sort of become dependent upon that. And this applies to men and women. You know, some women, they get very accustomed to uh, masturbating with a shower, you know, and they get that kind of stimulation and they can't come if they're not getting the same kind of stimulation that they get accustomed to with the shower or the bathtub faucet or vibrators or, you know, riding the, the dryer or whatever it is that gets you off. Uh, it's kind of common that you can get dependent on that. So you might need to take a, a breather as it were. Um, anyway, so if you have that kind of medical issue, I'm I'm hesitant to get into that because, as I say, I'm not a medical doctor and I don't want to give anyone bad advice or, you know, just fuck anyone up. So I stick to the more sort of theoretical things. For example, hey, Chris, uh, straightforward question. I was listening to a recent episode and you mentioned uh, that back in the day you considered yourself a Marxist. I'm assuming this means you no longer do. Could you explain why you changed your mind and what you don't agree with about Marxism? If you're not a Marxist now, then what ideology do you line up with more and why is this better in your opinion? Oh, that's a that's kind of a, a dangerous question there. Okay, well, first of all, Marxism. Uh, I think my feeling about Marx is that Marx uh, is one of the best historical uh, offers one of the best historical understandings of capitalism that there is probably the best um what he did was remarkable he he in terms of economics is kind of you know up there with darwin as far as i'm concerned his understanding of how capitalism works his understanding of the way different components of capitalism interact and um and uh, power and and capital uh, flows in certain ways is fantastic. I mean, having said that, I'm not a Marxist scholar by any stretch of the imagination. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who know far, well, definitely thousands of people who know far more about this than I do. Um, But my appreciation for Marx and this to whatever sense I once considered myself a Marxist, it was in terms of the analysis of capital and capitalism and how it works. His prescriptive work is a mess. Uh, obviously, if you look at communist countries and how they have functioned historically, uh, they were anything but the workers paradise that he predicted. So what's happened is that 
Marx has been tarnished um, by the real world uh, manifestation of some of the ideas that he presented in his later work where he was um, sort of proposing ways uh, out of the mess that capitalism has created. I personally think he would have done much better to have just stopped with his analysis. And this is something that uh, Kisilda and I dealt with in Sex at Dawn. There were a lot of um, pressures coming at us to give advice, you know, like, okay, you've explained why sexuality can be so frustrating in the modern world. You've explained the historical and prehistorical antecedents of our current situation and um, why our evolutionary impulses are in conflict with the sort of culturally imposed limitations and restrictions and guidance and all that. But what should we do about it? What's the takeaway, as publishing people love to say? And uh, to the extent that we were able, we resisted the urge to give any advice. Uh, we sort of added on a section at the end of Sex at Dawn about this fictional person named Phil who had an affair with his secretary, which led to him getting divorced and, you know, losing half his money to his ex-wife and blah, blah, blah. That was our attempt to sort of answer, um, to accede to those pressures, to to add some prescriptive stuff. But I kind of regret it because that's the part of the book that m people had trouble with. That's the only part of the book that anyone really seem to have a big problem with um, people who like the book. That is some people just hated the whole fucking thing. Um, and there's nothing to do about that. But the people who liked the book, a lot of them liked all of it except that part. <clears throat> and I understand why. In fact, we added a, a note to the reader in the paperback edition because I got so many emails from people who said, I love the book until I got to that very last part. And then you fucking drop the ball, man. So anyway, uh, that's what Marx did. Marx was great in analyzing what is wrong with capitalism. But the problem is, you know, when you say what's wrong with something, people think it's totally legitimate to then demand that you offer advice for what to do next. And it kind of seems like it makes sense, right? If you're saying, hey, the way you're doing this is all wrong, then it's kind of normal to say, all right, then what should we do, smarty pants? Um, but the thing is, when you're dealing with scholarship, I think you need to question the premise there. You don't need to necessarily offer a better way to do things just because you've recognized the flaws in the way we're currently doing things. Just like, you know, if you go to, a doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry, you've got terminal pancreatic cancer. You don't say, well, if you can't say something positive, don't say anything at all, doctor, you know, or, you know, if you don't have it, if you don't have a cure, then why are you even telling me I have a disease like that? That doesn't make sense. You want a diagnosis, right? Whether there's a cure or not. And <clears throat> I think intellectual matters follow the same rules so in terms of the book i'm fucking struggling with at the moment just because i'm explaining my understanding of what's wrong with the modern world doesn't mean that i necessarily need to turn around then and say okay guys here's how we need to do things and everyone will be happier just follow me because i have all the fucking answers 
I don't have all the fucking answers, but that doesn't mean that I don't have a cogent analysis of what's wrong, right? You know, there's there's something worthwhile in saying, hey guys, we're fucking lost, right? Because we've passed that tree four times now. We're lost. That's useful information if you are in fact lost. And it's not useful information only if the person who's pointing out that you're lost happens to know the way out of the forest, right? Even if I don't know where to go, that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to point out the fact that we're lost. And so I think that's that's the trip that Marx fell into. He pointed out how lost we were, and then he succumbed to the temptation to say, here's how we get out. I think he should have just stopped. So um, Marxist, I was never a Marxist in the sense that I thought that um, you know, we should all join the Soviet Union or China or any other communist country and do things the way they do it. Uh, I never joined the prescriptive end of things. And I think the reason that Marxism doesn't work, uh, socialism, which is the governmental system that, uh, or communism to be more precise, actually, is the governmental system that comes out of Marxism most directly. And the reason it doesn't work is scale. Because essentially I see, and this could just be me, but I see the struggle between capitalism and various forms of collective uh, economics, socialism, communism, etc., as a struggle between the post-agricultural worldview and the pre-agricultural worldview. That is, post-agricultural worldview is based on private property, farming, uh, hoarding of resources, um, hierarchical political systems, and the pre-agricultural political system is based upon or economic system is based upon egalitarianism. <clears throat> it's based upon equal uh, autonomy and and authority of men and women, even children in most cases, uh, to the extent that they're able to participate, are seen as equally valid individuals. They're not seen as someone else's property. Um, and uh, a sort of assumption of plenty in a pre-agricultural economic context which is an assumption of scarcity in a post-agricultural context. So there's enough. We can all share it. Everyone should have enough. That's seen in the modern world as a communist approach, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. I think that's a quote from Lenin. Um, But that's also a hunter-gatherer approach to life. There's enough. We can share. We have to share. That's the only way we survive. The difference is that hunter-gatherers all knew each other. They all took care of each other's kids. The women breastfed one another's babies. The men hunted together, fought together if, if there was fighting to be done, pulled each other out of the river, saved each other's bacon, uh, if that's an expression. Um, and so that kind of sharing economy works very well when everyone knows each other and reputational shame is a very effective tool. So if you go hunting and you cook your animal out in the middle of the woods and eat it yourself and don't share it with anyone, 
eventually someone's going to smell your fire and come and find you. And then they're going to tell the other people what you've done. And then you're going to be, if you're lucky, you're going to be shamed ruthlessly. If you're unlucky, you're going to be banished from the tribe and you're going to die alone. So that works in a small scale hunter-gatherer society. It doesn't work in massive large-scale hundreds of millions of people being ruled by some central organizing committee in, in, you know, Moscow. It doesn't work precisely because the ruling class is not uh, susceptible to reputational shame. So, you know, Stalin doesn't give a shit what the peasants think of him because it doesn't matter until unless there's a massive revolution where they're going to, you know, march against the tanks and overthrow the government. He doesn't have to give a fuck if people think he's a selfish prick. Right. And so that's the problem uh, with Marxism. It's also a problem, as we're seeing with democracy, when the people in power no longer really have to care uh, what the common people think of them, then things get out of control. So I've been talking for 20 minutes and I've barely even answered one question. What the fuck, man? Uh, So I don't consider myself a Marxist. I consider Marxism to be a modern iteration of a hunter-gatherer, collectivist, egalitarian approach to life, but it only works in philosophy, not in the real world, because there are just too many people now. It would work in a group of 150 people, but it's not going to work in 150 million people. And I think that was the insight that Marx was missing, which led him to think that a system could possibly be set up that would be in alignment with these very deeply human impulses and and human experience in terms of the lives of our ancestors. Um, But it's not going to work in the modern world because it doesn't scale. Some things just don't scale. And um, that's one of them. You need to know the people you're dealing with. So I've been talking for 20 minutes. I've answered one question. I'm going to play another song now because you must be tired of hearing my voice already. I certainly am. And I want to drink some beer. So uh, this song is called Sinama. Uh, S-I-N-A-M-A. And then the, the second word is Denw. D-E-N-W. It's being sung by Habib Koite, who is from Mali, also in Northern Africa. Hope you dig it. I'll be back to answer some more questions in a few minutes. Allo musona de woro Bara musota ye denanie Duni kono tumabe kene bambali Misima ya kelete domi Allo musosi gile ni konoro kasie Filenija te bambalie 
Beautiful voice, huh? Amazing. There's a lot of really good music comes out of Mali. Um, Ali Farka Touré. There's a great record Ali Farka Touré did with, um, uh, what's his name? The great blues guitarist. It's called Talk, Talking Timbuktu. I can't remember the guy's name right now. He did the, the Buena Vista Social Club as well. Anyway, look up Talking Timbuktu if you like the Kora. Beautiful stringed instrument uh, with a gourd. It's uh, kind of, it, it's very cool with the blues. It's like the sort of African antecedents of blues. Talking Timbuktu, great record. Anyway, that was Habib Koite from the same country. Uh, here we go. This is from Andrea. First of all, I love your podcast. Da, 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 da. Thank you, Andrea. I'm a nurse. Um, Okay, so she said, I've heard you and some other podcasters mention social justice warriors in a dismissive way. I may be one, so I want to hear a rant on what this even means and what makes this annoying for you. Okay, and then she says, I'm a nurse. I got into the medical field because of my epiphanies about social justice in Haiti. I heard the perspective from self-mastery gurus about everybody being responsible for their own fate. Um... Uh, oh, she actually wrote to me before and I wrote back to her. That's nice. Um, some question why work to save lives. Not everyone's supposed to live according to them. Um, this is attractive because it seems to liberate us from any obligatory feelings of putting tangible energy into hard, shitty realities. I too want to focus on what makes me happy, healthy, well-traveled and well-fucked. However, it bothers me deeply that most people who are set up that most people who are set up to die prematurely do so because of man-made forces. 
it seems elitist to believe that everyone is in control of their fate. In this sense, I think the social justice warrior thing isn't so misguided after all. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, two things here. First of all, when I talk about social justice warriors, especially if I'm doing it in a dismissive way, I'm not talking about people who go to Haiti and help people and living in Haitian slums. For those of you who don't know, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, arguably the poorest country in the world. It's right in there with Bangladesh and probably Nicaragua and uh, Mozambique and a couple of others. Um, The difference being that those other countries have a lot of um, jungle and people living... uh, they're poor. Bangladesh might not be a good example, but Mozambique certainly is, and Nicaragua is. They're considered poor because the moneyed economy uh, is, doesn't show a lot of money-changing hands. <clears throat> but in Mozambique, and many African countries and tropical countries in Asia and South America, there are lots of people who have a garden, they have some pigs, they have um, fruit trees, and they don't really need to buy much. If they're living in a thatch hut and they've got some goats, they're not buying much. Uh, They might buy a machete, they might have a tractor, they might get a motorbike every once in a while, but they're not engaging in the money economy very much. So in terms of external measures of GDP, that looks like a really poor country. But if you go there, you see people are living pretty well. They're happy. They're healthy. Uh, they've got not not many complaints. So it's poor, but in air quotes. And then you look at a country like Haiti, uh, which has suffered incredible deforestation. It's been wiped out. It was strangled by Western governments for centuries. It still, I believe, uh, is being strangled by France. Haiti, for those of you who haven't studied Western history much, Haiti was the first country to rebel against European colonialism. Before the United States, before the colonies of the United States, they rebelled against, uh, was it Napoleon? I don't remember who was in charge in France at the time. But there was a slave revolt. Haiti was a slave state, and it was they revolted against the French, and they kicked the French's ass. And um, in response, what France did was they set up reparations, and they strangled the Haitian economy for centuries, uh, much as the United States did to Cuba. You know, when the Cuban Revolution took place, the United States said, "Okay, fuck you guys. You can't engage in the world economy. You owe us for all those hotels and casinos and all that other shit that um, you took over in the revolution and the interest accrues. It's kind of like what's happening to a lot of us with student loans right now. You know, you'll never outlive that debt. That'll follow you right into Social Security payments. Well, that's what they do on the international scale as well. There's a book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman that gets into some of this stuff. Very interesting about uh, how Latin American countries have been pulled into indefinite, perpetual servitude and uh, debt slavery. Anyway, so what I'm talking about when I'm dismissive, you know, I can't talk for other podcasters or whatever, but when I get dismissive, I'm talking about these people with their microaggressions and you know, running around getting offended about every goddamn little thing that's said 
uh, that they find doesn't align perfectly with their cherished values. Uh, they tend to be very young. They tend to be in universities. They tend to be American. Uh, they tend to be very privileged and fucking boring and annoying. They're not people who go to Haiti and, you know, walk through open sewers as you did. Uh, people who do that understand the difference between what's really going on in the world and, um, you know, getting upset because somebody forgot the cue when they said LGBT. Um, there are macro problems in the world and people who are focused on microaggressions, I think, are part of the problem because all the energy that could be focused on getting shit done, real shit done, is instead being squandered on, you know, creating safe spaces and arguing over how many letters should be in that acronym and, and others. So examples of this sort of thing that I've seen recently, uh, when Carrie Fisher died a few weeks ago, Steve Martin, who was an old friend of hers, and I think, you know, pretty much everybody uh, considers Steve Martin to be a really cool guy. Uh, I've, I haven't met him personally, but I've never heard anything bad about Steve Martin, and he just comes across as such a decent guy. Anyway, he tweeted uh, something the day she died. He said, when I was a young man, Carrie Fisher was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. She turned out to be witty and bright as well. Now, if you read that or hear that and you think, yeah, nice. Well, yeah, that's what I thought. Turns out people got upset about that. Uh, people gave him a lot of shit about that because he focused on her appearance. He said that she was the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen. And some people felt that that was demeaning to her. People who, of course, had never met him or her, but... Uh, so their tweets, you know, Steve Martin's tweet was extremely bad. This is a very bad tribute to Carrie Fisher and all this anger and yada, 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 And so he, he deleted the tweet and just like disappeared from the conversation. Uh, I consider that ridiculous. Re-fucking-diculous. Uh, you know, a similar thing. Matt LeBlanc, who was um, Joey on Friends. So he's... Uh, going to the Emmy Awards and he's getting interviewed and, you know, before the thing. And um, somebody asked him if he watched Game of Thrones, to which he responded, quote, I saw the first season and then kind of fell out of touch with it. And I guess that's when she started getting naked. Um, I guess he was standing next to Amelia Clark. Here, I'll just read this. This is a uh, this is an article from The Frisky, which is an online magazine, I guess, by Lauren Holter. Uh, the headline is, Matt LeBlanc was disgusting on the Emmy's red carpet and can leave showbiz now. That's the headline. Lauren says, Matt LeBlanc has been beloved without question since his stint on Friends, but he proved at the Emmy Awards Sunday night that he shouldn't be held on such a high pedestal. Look, he's not Joey Tribbiani, but he does share some of the character's disgusting characteristics, like objectifying women. LeBlanc got 
gross about Game of Thrones' Amelia Clark during an interview on the red carpet, which no one found the least bit funny. LeBlanc and Clark met the Graham Norton show a few months ago. There's a typo there, met on the Graham Norton show a few months ago, and posted a picture together. Because of this one-time encounter, E asked the Friends actor if he watches Game of Thrones, to which he responded, quote, I saw the first season and then kind of fell out of touch with it, and I guess that's when she started getting naked, so I need to catch up, unquote. Yeah, that's why he needs to catch up. Not because everyone's obsessed with the show's brilliance and Clark's incredible acting. Turns out he's not that different from the character he played for a decade who only cared about getting women in bed. Sure, this, his stupidity was funny, but Joey treated women terribly and was actually a pretty gross dude. The world still sees LeBlanc as gr Joey Tribbiani, and apparently he sees himself that way too. Whew. Wow. Okay. And then there was something else, uh, which I didn't print here, but it was about how like he should just quit acting and disappear because he's so disgusting. Um, so I read this and I, I think, yeah, fuck you, Lauren Holter. No, I don't know Matt LeBlanc, but give me a fucking break. Nobody who watches Game of Thrones has missed the fact that uh, Amelia Clark, who plays what's her name the 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 goddess the dragon goddess is hot her sexual power is part a big part of her role it's her character that she's this incredibly hot young woman who's got these dragons who will do anything she says and fuck everybody up and then she gets captured by these dothraki warriors and you know they're gonna rape her and instead she like ends up fucking the king and he t he becomes her lover and they're it's like Come on, it's all about sex, and it's all about how she's a sexually assertive, powerful young woman. And Mott LeBlanc has proved what an asshole he is by even making a joke about that, by even admitting that that's a good reason to watch the show, because she's really hot. Oh, man. So yeah, that's what I mean. That kind of bullshit. When you've got a world where cops are choking out black people and not even going to jail for it or shooting them, not even going to trial for it, you got a world where hundreds of people are being shot in Chicago every fucking month. You got a world where millions of people in the Middle East are walking across deserts with no water, dying because there's no fucking food and we're bombing wedding parties in Yemen and shooting eight-year-old American kids and it's fucking crazy what's going on in the world. There's crazy shit going on in the world and Mott LeBlanc acknowledging that what's her name there, Amelia Clark is hot, is not anywhere in the top million things that anybody should be upset about as far as I'm concerned. Now, Lauren Holter can get huffy about this if she wants to, but I can also say, fuck off, Lauren Holter. You're full of shit. Get a life. Go to Haiti. Help somebody. Do something real. Give me a fucking break. Okay, that was a rant. I need a song now. How about a song called Mike Miki Saule? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hold on, let me see who this is. Okay, this tune is by a guy named Kali, K-A-L-I, who's from Martinique. 
So there's some African influence in this as well, which you'll hear, I'm sure. Enjoy this and try to, <clears throat> I hope you can cleanse your palate of my, uh, my disdain. J'ai qu'en Amérique, mais où toujours, toujours chimérique, dans mon amour nous bien dramatico. J'ai dit mon amour où j'accadomi, qui ont des caresses où j'allais partir, en bas étoile au soin manqué dormi. Mais qui ça voulait, qui m'en a voulu m'en faire, mais qui m'en a voulu moi-même. Je l'ai fait croiser, croiser à Soubatou, ouais. Mais qui m'en a voulu
Oh, yeah. Okay, here's one from, let's say, Maria. So Maria is uh, currently in school, fifth year of undergrad. Uh, Not sure if she's going to graduate for various reasons. Anyway, she uh, recently became close to a professor, and um, he's incredibly smart, politically active, always challenged the way I thought, da-da-da. I found him very interesting. I started to hang out, go to his uh, office hours. There was absolutely nothing no chemistry, no attraction. Um, sometimes I'd run into him around school. Usually we just talk, talk about life and school and catch up, but there's never any flirtiness or ulterior motives. Um, then uh, she started running into him more often at various things. Uh, they were part of some group together or something, so they saw each other more often. Eventually, our dynamic became incredibly flirty, something neither of us ever in a million years expected. Okay, I thought it would be fine if we talked in a leather relationship to develop naturally, but he always had a hang-up about it. He kept insisting on waiting until after I graduated, etc., um, and, uh, so the intensity's built up and still up to this point, the most we've engaged in is some touching, but nothing past that. Our clothes are always on. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to today. He's told me that all the stress and anxiety he has over many things in life, ranging from work to loss in his family. And one of the things, uh, that's causing him stress is this relationship that he has with me. It's, um, not simple anxiety. He can't sleep. He cries all the time. He has heart problems, etc. He's also recently quit smoking, and this may be related. He has, uh, yeah. Okay. So the relationship is a big stress factor in his life. He sounds very stressed out. And then she says, uh, the thing is, we have so much chemistry. It's undeniable. I know this feeling is possible with other people because it's everywhere. But why conceptualize it that way when you've got something great right in front of you? To me, it feels like I'm falling in love. Uh, For him, I'm not sure, but he's probably waking up to his feelings for me because he previously numbed them with his smoking. I'm not sure that's how smoking works, at least not tobacco. Um, I'm probably going to be done with school at the end of this of September. Oh, at the end of this semester after which he might feel a lot more open to starting something. Huh. Just to add to the complication, he's in his early 40s and decided he wants to adopt a child. I'm in my early 20s. And while I'm interested in maybe having a kid someday, this seems kind of abrupt for me. And, you know, getting into it with him and a kid seems like a weird way to start. He's going to start going to therapy uh, but it's like gravity. There's some force chemistry, which we've both agreed exists that sort of dictates our interactions. Ooh, you're surrendering responsibility for your interactions. Very dangerous. We've tried fighting it more than once in the past by not flirting and keeping it professional. But every time the force takes over and we're back to square one. So something is there and it's like the universe put it there. So I'm Not sure why the universe seems to be trying to separate us. I know there's no question in all this, but I'd like to hear your thoughts because they help me see situations differently, etc. Okay, well, you might not like my thoughts, Maria, because my thoughts are that you're kidding yourself. And 
that's understandable for someone your age and even to be expected uh all this business about the universe telling you this and that and gravity and force fields and all that stuff um but this guy's in his 40s he needs to grow the fuck up uh and also it sounds like he's he's a bundle of fucking problems do you really want to get into these problems you really want to you know spend your 20s taking care of some guy in his 40s who's freaking out having you know heart palpitations crying all the time can't deal with his own shit much less yours and he wants to adopt a kid like what is this guy what's going on with this guy yeah he needs therapy and you need to just like get away from that guy because look You say, oh, there's something between us. We've got something. There's definitely something there. Yeah, there is something there. It's called an obstacle. And I've said this before on the podcast. I'll say it again. There's a book called Jack Marin. I think it's called The Erotic Mind. M-O-R-I-N is his name. And he says that attraction plus an obstacle equals passion. So think about any love story you've ever heard, Romeo and Juliet, whatever it is, any love story, West Side Story, any love story. It's two people who are attracted to one another and there's some problem, there's some obstacle. One of them's married, both of them are married, their families don't want them to see each other, there's a big age gap, uh, they're, the one's a professor, one's a student, they'll get fired, everything will go to hell, they can't do it, one's a priest, one's a, a nun, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they're gay, they can't admit they're gay, whatever it is, there's a danger, it's prohibited, oh my God, we can't do it, we can't do it, and the more you can't do it, the more you want to do it, it's the way it works, so it is kind of like gravity in a sense, because you take something and you put something between you take this rock and then you put something between that rock and where it's trying to go which is the earth the center of the earth and that's the weight that's the attraction that's the passion right just like things you know the gravitational effect things are attracted to one another they want to come together people are that way so You're attracted to someone. Now, you're attracted to a dozen people a day, probably, walking around your campus, walking around any major city. I'll tell you what, if you walk down a street in Barcelona, you're going to be attracted to a lot of fucking people. Now, the thing is, you're just attracted to them. It doesn't matter. But when you're attracted to someone, when you meet someone and you can't be with them, but you can tell they want to be with you and you want to be with them, but you can't because of some thing that you wish weren't there. That's when you get the great passion. That's when it starts to amp up. That's when you get that resistance. It's like, it's like everything else. Muscle builds from resistance. You get this fight, this struggle. That's what makes it stronger. So... I don't believe that what you have with this guy is really anything special at all. He sounds like a fucking mess to me. And you're a kid. You're 22 years old. With all due respect, and a lot of respect is due. I'm not saying you're less than a human. I'm not saying you're less than a person deserving of respect. I, I have total respect for you. But you're 22 years old. You don't need to be dealing with this bullshit. 
save that for later when you've got heart problems and want to adopt a kid and you know are waking up crying in the middle of the night because you're middle-aged and don't know what your fucking life is you can deal with that then you don't need to be dealing with that now you could be having fun now and i'm not saying you have to date people your own age you can date old dudes if you're into older dudes that's fine just date an older dude who's got his shit together this guy doesn't now maybe when you hear me say this I'm just going to become part of the obstacle and it's going to make it even more intense for you. You're going to want to be with him even more because you're going to say, oh, Chris Ryan, who I normally respect, is wrong about this. Oh, my God, this is even more special than I thought because he can't recognize how special it is from my email. Okay, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you could choose who you want to be passionate with. You can choose who you want to spend these years of your life with. And believe me, the the next 10 years of your life are uniquely, uh, I'm trying to avoid cliches here. I don't want to carefree, carefree 20s, but you can fuck up in your 20s and it doesn't matter. When you fuck up later, when you fuck up in your 30s and your 40s, then it starts to fucking hurt, man. It's like, in those early rounds, you can take a few blows and you'll keep going because you're fresh. Your legs are fresh. You're, you've got energy. But man, fourth, fifth round, you take a body, you take a shot to the kidney. Oh, fuck. It's going to bring you down. It's going to make your knees wobbly. So I'm saying try to stay out of harm's way in, in your 20s. Have fun. You're going to fuck up. You're going to fall and land on your face. It's going to happen anyway. But you know, try to avoid the big problems, the big problems like getting pregnant, like, uh, you know, adopting a kid, (laughs) like hooking up with a dude who's a mess and, you know, doesn't have his own shit together. You don't need to be taking care of somebody when you're 22. I mean, unless it's your mom or your dad or a brother or your best friend, you can't avoid it. Then, okay, you, you fucking fess up and you deal with it. But some guy who you can choose whether or not he becomes part of your life. Nah, nah, you're not going to learn from this guy. He sounds like, you know, some sort of academic who can probably quote Jacques Derrida till the fucking sun goes down, but he can't clean his own kitchen. You know, Uh, I would avoid that guy. And again, I'm all in favor of young women dating older men. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with that. But you know, look for a guy you're going to actually learn something from. Look from a guy who's not trying to pull you into his mess. That's that's my advice. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess that's all I have to say about that. I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a, a great situation to enter into, Maria. Okay, last email. This is from uh, a guy who says, he quotes from Sex at Dawn, actually the the section I mentioned earlier about Phil, who um, has been married for a long time and and, um, finds himself attracted to a secretary and then he has sex with the secretary and because he feels so uh, sort of rejuvenated, um, he thinks he's in love. He thinks the secretary is this amazing person and now he's in love because food tastes better and colors brighter and everything's wonderful and um, actually what he's doing is he's confusing a testosterone surge which is associated with 
being with a new uh, sexual partner with love. And if you just gave him an injection of testosterone, he'd be feeling the same things, but he wouldn't be attributing it to this woman. And that's going to fade. And then he's going to realize that it wasn't actually her or whatever it was that she was intoxicating him with is worn off. And now he's, you know, it's three years later and he's divorced and poor and his friends think he's ridiculous and so on. Um, you read Sex of Dawn to get that. But anyway, this guy writes and he says, I am Phil. Uh, I'm 36, no kids. What the hell am I supposed to do in this exact situation? Um, does the passion always fade? I don't know what, you know, how to deal with this. So, uh, okay. Yes, I think the, the passion always fades. That's the bad news. <clears throat> now, some people claim that it doesn't. Some people claim that, you know, they, they've been married 30, 40, 50 years and they're just as into each other um, as they were a week after they met. And if, you know, more power to them, that's great. But uh, I think that for most people, it's inevitable that the sexual passion is going to fade. We are novelty-seeking creatures. It's, uh, you know, we're intelligent, and part of our intelligence is that we are attracted to newness. We're attracted to learning. We're attracted to experiences we haven't had before. And um, so when your only sexual partner, you, you've only had one sexual partner for a number of years, depending on what your appetite for novelty is, you're going to grow tired and and it's it's going to lose its flair its spark for you now that's not to say that there aren't other compensating um advantages that come with the time together in fact in sex at dawn we quote um a book called uh, corelli's mandolin by louis de bernier he says love is not breathlessness it is not excitement. It is not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any of us can convince ourselves we are. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. So you think about the, the young woman and her professor from the previous message. They're not they don't love one another. They don't even know one another, but they've convinced themselves they're in love because they feel this, oh my God, the universe is pushing us together, but it's stopping us. And there's this resistance and oh my God, I want this so bad. And, but we can't have it. And so, oh, but we keep our clothes on, but we're still fooling around. And oh my God, I want it so bad. That's convincing yourself you're in love, but that's not love. You don't know each other. And I'm convinced that when she gets to know him, she's going to realize this guy's a fucking dweeb. I don't want to be with him. But love is what's left when that shit burns away. So the problem is that we get into relationships with people based upon that fire. We, get, we, we are attracted to one another. So we say, yeah, I want to have a relationship with you. But then you form this relationship, you have kids, you buy a house, you move in together, you, you know, make all these compromises and commitments and maneuvers in order to be together. And then that shit burns away as it always burns away. Every fire burns through its fuel eventually, right? And then what are you left with? 
Well, if you're lucky, you're left with a friend. You're left with someone you really care about and love and love as a person, as a human being, someone you recognize and know and appreciate. That, that's love. That other stuff is just to throw us together. That stuff is about genes. That's about making babies. It's not about growing old together. So what do you do when you find someone who is your friend, who you want to grow old with, who you love in that deep, profound spirit, soul level, and the sexual passion starts to fade? Well, I don't know what you do. I, I think there are lots of different options, and some of them aren't available to you. Some, some may be. One is that you can introduce an obstacle into your relationship. So, for example... There are couples who um, vacation separately so that, you know, once a year they spend a few weeks apart and that re that time of missing one another gives them a chance to remember why they're together in the first place. It reminds them how precious the other's presence is because when it's gone, they feel its absence, Right. Other couples might live separately. Your job takes you somewhere else. Well, okay, you go. I'll stay here and, you know, we'll, we'll be bi-coastal for a while and we'll see each other every few months. Sometimes that'll destroy the relationship, but sometimes that makes it stronger. Um, because the, the domestic day-to-day -day stuff, you know, that can get in the way. That, that can become the water on the fire that, uh, that puts out the fire. Other people are turning to, you know, polyamory or swinging or introducing other sexual partners into the mix. So, okay, we've got our, our primary relationship. I know you love me. You know I love you. We're not going to leave each other. That's not in question, but hey, I'd like some strange every once in a while, and so would you. So, you know, let's do this together. So they swing or they have a, you know, if she's into women, they have a woman who joins them occasionally. Or if he's okay with another dude, then they have another dude who joins them or couples or whatever it is. So they introduce other sexual partners within their relationship. Other people, polyamorous, are like, okay, you've got your boyfriends, I've got my girlfriends, but this is our main thing and everyone knows and everything's on the table. Other people have affairs and they lie about it. That's probably the most common approach, right? Is you have affairs, but you make it really clear that like I'm married and, you know, I'm never going to leave my wife or my husband or whatever it is. That's uh, that's the way most people deal with it, probably. Uh, prostitution, sex workers is another way. Lower risk than affairs, certainly. Because the problem with affairs is you're lying to your partner and then you find that you're telling the truth to the person you're having the affair with. And then you look at your life and you're saying, wow, this person I'm having an affair with actually knows me better than the person I live with because I need to lie to the person I live with, but I don't need to lie to the person I'm having the affair with. Hmm. Interesting alignment there. So... What's my advice? I don't know, man. My advice, my only advice is not to beat yourself up over it and not to blame your partner over it um, because that diminishment of passion is just part of the deal. That's just the way it works. I mean, we've all heard the jokes, right? They're all the jokes about, you know, 
whatever. Why is, why is the bride smiling at the wedding? Because she knows she'll never have to give another blowjob. You know, come on, we've all heard that. Or what's the other one? The, uh, you know, the thing about they put a, the, the, you put a, a marble in the jar every time you have sex before you get married. And then when you get married, you start taking a marble out of the jar every time you have sex and you'll never empty the jar, right? There are all these kind of truisms about how passion fades a few years into the relationship and they're based on reality. So it's not your fault. It's not her fault or his fault. It's the way it is. And um, <clears throat> so the ways of dealing with it are to artificially create an obstacle of one sort or another and or add some kind of spice into the relationship that may involve other people, may involve watching porn together, may involve sharing your fantasies with each other, finding ways to keep things new, um, even if they aren't new, even if it's just the two of you. But, you know, talk about what kind of men she'd want to have sex with. Talk about what kind of women you'd want to have sex with. Learn to deal with that without being threatened by it. And that can add a really a nice uh, jolt to the relationship. So good luck with that. It's an eternal conundrum you're facing. Okay, uh, I'm going to play you out. I'm done. I'm done, folks. It's been an hour. <clears throat> I've heard enough of this shit. Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song. Somebody reminded me recently of a song I played a while ago. That's uh, a guy sent me, I guess he was up late and he just was, he's from a band called the Hoppennies and his name's Will Earlham and he recorded this and uh, sent it out to me raw and I asked him if I could play it and he said, yes, so I'm going to play it again. It was unnamed. I don't know if he ever did anything with it. Uh, it's an unnamed song, very spontaneous, sort of slapped down in the middle of the night, as I said, and uh, I love it for for. It's a great song, and I also love the rawness of it. So this is Will Earlham's song, and the band is The Hop Pennies. I hope you'll check them out, and I'm not going to play any ads or pleas for money or any of that other stuff. You guys know I want your money. You know how to get it to me if you want to. Thank you, everybody, for uh, your support and uh, for listening to me ranting. Hope you're doing well out there in the world. Send me your questions if you have a good one that doesn't involve how to jerk off. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Maybe I'll just stay a child Play with bugs in the wild Run through puddles and stand my feet I'm getting way right up to my knees for fun You're all fucking cheap And I don't know Why'd you wanna go so You're making me Making me low So low Your skin so Skin so tight And cold And don't Paint you a picture using only my hand. 
all some pasta pieces Well I'm just like Peter Pan Say when did we Stop playing for keep Oh I play for fun Cause you all got them cheap Your skin so, skin so tight 